Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with Good evening and welcome to The War Room. I'm your host, Bill Evans. Tonight we have Tom Hoffling, who's the America's Party candidate for President of the United States in 2016 elections. Welcome, Tom. Hey, it's great to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me. I uh, had seen your name. Um, I don't generally pay a great deal of attention to the three-ring circus we call national politics, but... um, I'd seen that you uh, that there were many around the country who were engaged in grassroots canvassing for you, and um, I was urged to have you on the program. So this is uh, basically we want to give you an opportunity to answer some questions and and uh, explain to our listeners why you are the uh, principled voters' choice in this upcoming. Election. We're not going to ask you to to to, to address the other candidates, uh, only uh, to the extent that I know that there were uh, former GOP, not uh, former candidates, who were GOP candidates, uh, Huckabee Carson, Santorum Cruz. They were all pro-life, and uh, and I and I would encourage our listeners to to look at your website because your platform is very clear and straightforward there's nothing ambiguous about it um and so i wanted just to ask you and these are questions many of these questions i think that i've gotten from listeners uh who uh, were informed that you were going to be uh, on with us tonight and uh so i'm I, i'm not going to take these any any particular order because i just jotted down some notes for myself now uh you describe yourself as a christian and I think you, you mentioned to me in a, in a previous conversation, and I think you also uh, try to eschew any particular labels. You don't think the labels are, are necessarily helpful. You describe yourself as a non-den- non-denominational. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's right, Bill. Okay. Would you, for our listeners who are almost predominantly pretty theologically self-conscious group of people, I, I might say, um, would you just give us a bare-bones um, statement of of what you mean when you say Christian? Well, I mean Christian in the sense that the Bible talks about Christianity. I believe the Bible. I believe every word of it, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Uh, I believe the gospel. And uh, I, you know, have had my own experience uh, with the Lord and with repentance and with turning to him and and experiencing uh you know forgiveness the forgiveness that can only come from him uh so you know there's only one kind of christian as far as i'm concerned you you either is or you ain't and i is could you say it's fair to say and, and if i'm and if i'm misstating something just correct me uh that you consider the word of god the bible to be um, 
the highest standard in terms of for an individual or for a government, for that matter, to determine what is moral, what is right, what is righteous, what is wicked? Yeah, uh, revealed truth is, you know, it's, it's the basis for this country. Just go read what the founders of this country said. Uh, they made it very clear. They, when they talked about their sources for all of the documents they wrote to found this country, the Bible was overwhelmingly uh, the most cited. So, you know, our, our whole uh, form of government, our claim to liberty, is all premised in Christianity and in the Bible. Do you see any distinction between the term natural law and God's law? Um... I certainly don't exactly equate them. Uh, God's law, you know, in his revealed word, uh, is, of course, superior to everything else. Uh, the natural law understanding is sort of the uh, philosophy of government that grew up in Western civilization over the centuries. And actually going all the way back to, you know, ironically, somebody who was an old heathen, and that's Cicero. Okay. Uh, you know, up through Aquinas, you know, we read Blackstone, Locke, uh, others, up to, you know, our founding generation, Samuel Adams, uh, Alexander Hamilton, others, you know, uh, held forth a great length on their understanding of the natural law and that being the basis for our form of government. Uh, our Constitution really can't be understood properly unless you have, you know, the rudiments of an understanding of the natural law. I'm not baiting here, not leading, but just let me ask you a couple of a question here just kind of grew out of your comments. Would you consider men like Aunt Judge Andrew Napolitano and our Judge Roy Moore in Alabama to be suitable candidates for the uh, Supreme Court bench? I think uh, I don't know enough about Napolitano. Uh, I really don't. Uh, Judge Moore certainly would, and uh, at least one of his colleagues on the Alabama Supreme Court, uh, I think, would be a good candidate. I, I got to tell you that uh, the candidates are that I would find acceptable are very hard to find. You you would you would consider yourself then? Is that the term uh, strict constructionist then? Oh, absolutely. I, 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 well, <laughs> it means what it says, and it's not a living document. It does mean what it says. It's not a living document. And I, you also have to take an account, into account original intent. Okay. Uh, so. Good enough there. Uh, what, just a per, somewhat of a personal question. By the way, you're, you have a large family, and I, think I, it, and I think that bodes well in most people's mind. Yeah, I, I love my family. I uh, have three older children from my first marriage, uh, and I have three grandchildren and two on the way. Uh, Sienna and I married uh, a little over a decade ago, and we have so we have six beautiful younger children here at home, and every one of them is a precious gift. Uh, there have been several questions uh, regarding your wife and are your running mate and the topic of Mormonism and LDS and how that figures into the entire Hoffling equation uh, plays out. Would you care to address that briefly? Well, let's start with my running mate. Uh, Steve Shulin from South Carolina is, uh, I, I would say, probably classified about like me, an evangelical Christian 
uh, you know, comes out of a Baptist background. He did attend a Catholic university because he was invited. They needed him on their debate team. So he got a, uh, a good ride uh, at a Catholic university. But he's a, he's a Protestant. He's, a, he's an evangelical Christian. Uh, my wife, Sienna, was raised uh, in Utah, and she is LDS. Uh, you know, of course, she's not running. Uh, I know some people will take that into consideration when they consider me that I uh, married a Mormon, and some people do, and some people don't like it a bit. But uh, what they would find if they know my wife is somebody who is... First of all, believes the Bible, believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, it is God. Uh, really is very orthodox in her beliefs in terms of what she believes about the Bible. Um, she also politically is very important to me. She's helped me over the last decade, uh, you know, come to a deeper understanding of what ails our country. Uh, if she was running for office, I think most of your listeners would find that she's far more conservative and far more right uh, on the critical issues of the day than certainly anybody else other than myself that's running for president this year. So, sort of segueing closely related to that is your view of the government, the, the United States government's role in education. you care to speak to that? Yeah, uh, it was actually education that got me involved in politics in the first place back in the 80s. I was a homeschool dad, and I soon discovered that even if I didn't care about politics, politics was going to care about me. And so that was kind of the genesis of me beginning to involve myself politically. Um, so I, I've been an advocate for homeschooling for private schools uh, for three decades. Uh, first, let me say, the federal government has no constitutional authority to involve itself in education at all. So let's just clear that out of the way. Well, your stock just spiked with my listeners. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> well, uh, for, for more than 20 years, my formulation of how to lay out what I think about education is this. I, I propose what I call TLC, which stands for True Local Control of Our Schools. I think, first of all, God did not give to government the, the responsibility to educate my children. He gave that responsibility to me as their parent. Uh, I don't want the federal government involved in this. I don't even want the state governments involved in this. Uh, most, most folks don't realize uh, that the vast majority or more than 60% of their state budgets are going into this education beast. One that's grown up and, and, in fact, has become hostile, spiritually hostile to our children, morally hostile, intellectually hostile, and now physically hostile. These are not even safe places for children to go in the physical sense. So I, I want to get government out of education. At the most, uh, let's keep our education dollars in our county, no, no higher than the county level uh, would be my preference. Uh, if folks want to have local schools, general schools, you know, that's their local decision if they want to do that. Well, anytime, uh, anytime you refer, use the term beast in reference to any agency of the government, you're resonating <laughs> with the people that, that listen to us. So, uh, well, it's, that would, you know, that would fit in a large portion of what the federal government is doing now. 
Uh, who would I'm, I'm just again I'm taking these as I as I jotted them down. Um, in your in your not just in your faith journey, but in your maturation as a man. Obviously, homeschooling dads one of the benefits is that you get to learn a lot because you're you're teaching your children. Uh, as you've developed and matured uh, philosophically, politically, uh, spiritually, who would you say? Uh, what philosophers slash writers, obviously other than God, who's probably your favorite writer, uh, but uh, what uh, political and our uh, theological or philosophical writers books would you say your shortlist that have influenced you personally uh, that's a great question you know I've read a lot of stuff over the years you know Bastia's The Law from 1850 uh, of course is, is very important uh, Adam Smith uh, you know I've tried to dig into a lot of those sorts of things I am constantly researching digging up stuff uh, stuff from the founders uh, in the modern sense, you know, I, I have to say that I was greatly influenced by my old friend, Dr. Alan Keyes, uh, in terms of my political philosophy. Uh, you know, being around that man is bound to have an effect on you. I, I think he, well, he certainly taught me a lot. Uh, you know, when I first met him back in 1996, you know, I was probably pretty much already in the same place he was. <laughs> in terms of my understanding and you know, my foundation philosophically, politically, and the principles of the Declaration of Independence and those things. But I certainly learned a lot from him uh, in terms of foreign policy because he was so uh, intimately involved in the, the Ronald Reagan foreign policy team that helped bring down the Soviet Union. You know, I had many, many long discussions with him on many topics over the years, and I certainly gained a lot from that. Okay. Uh, I, I won't give you a reading list. That's not my job. I'm just <laughs> here to ask you questions. But uh, how would you say you differ from a GOP candidate and or perhaps even a Paul administration in terms of foreign policy and immigration policy? Oh, okay. I was going to start to lay out my differences with most of the GOP on abortion and other things and judicial power and those things. But in terms of foreign policy, um, the, be the best way I know to describe my foreign policy views in brief is uh, to, to use the example of a road. Um, you know, every road has two ditches. Uh, in terms of this subject, uh, one ditch would be the globalists, the transnationalists, uh, these people are, are power elites uh, who don't care about the American people, they don't care about our constitution, they don't care about our national sovereignty, uh, they simply care for their own money and power or ideology or whatever it is. Uh, so I think that's one ditch. The other ditch would be what I would call you know, extreme isolationism. Uh, we do have moral obligations in the world. Uh, just to put it in personal terms, if, if there's a mob on the other side of town, you know, robbing and looting and burning and raping and murdering people, you know, you can board up your windows and you can lock your doors and you can hide. Uh, you can say, am I my brother's keeper? But, you know, we do have responsibilities. And... The practical side of that, beyond the moral questions that are involved, is, uh, 
you know, the fact that the mob is going to be coming and knocking down your door next. So had you been in Congress, would you have approved of the war in Iraq? Um, that's a good question. Truthfully, I did support the war at the time. Uh, I once had a graphic on my hard drive bill that, uh, uh, show that area of the world, and this was post-invasion, and it, it, it had an American flag graphic planted where we had a base in that part of the world, and it was quite striking. Uh, the ring of flags ringed Iran, and so I think in terms of you know the strategic sort of view, I think I could see from that graphic what they were trying to do. They were trying to isolate Iran. Uh, the invasion of Iraq, you know, did get rid of Hussein, but it, it did isolate Iran, and in fact, it also quite uh, elegantly isolated Syria at the time. So, look, you know, in a sense, I can't give you a complete answer and, and still be honest. Uh, because, you know, some guy running a, a campaign for his front porch <clears throat> out in Iowa does not have access to all of the information that the President of the United States has. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have all the intelligence that is available to them. So I can't tell you in, you know, explicit, uh, exact sense exactly what I would do in every direction. I mean, this is one area where you kind of say, these are the principles that I think should guide us. Fair enough. Uh what is your now as you know among christians of various different stripes uh there are opposing views on the centrality of um geo of the geopolitical state of israel modern day israel do you uh, what is your view uh of the of our relationship with israel do you feel that as an official policy that we should have that we should unconditionally support them or is that constitutional or biblical um i'm not a replacement kind of person um uh, when i read my bible my sense is that god's not done with that people uh so uh, that being the case i think you know the things we read in genesis about how folks should treat israel i think still apply to be honest about it Okay, I, I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna attempt to school you on my view. No, it's it's fine. It's fine. But let me say, uh, so you know, I I do think Christians should support Israel. Uh, that being said, they're our ally, and they are a reliable ally, and they're about the only stable regime in that part of the world. And uh, you know, they they're our friends. Do you believe uh, that? Um lobbyists, uh, foreign lobbyists, uh, exercise undue influence over U.S. policy? Uh, well, that's true in every area. I mean, Washington is bursting at the seams with lobbyists for everything. What is your view on law enforcement's seeming immunity? Now, this is actually a local issue and not something that necessarily could be influenced directly from the Oval Office, except through the tone of a, of a leader. But what is your view on law enforcement seeming immunity in cases of police shootings and our brutality? Well, they shouldn't be 
uh, immune, <laughs> we, we should all be treated the same way under the law. So, I mean, what, what else is there to say? I mean, uh, if we as a people are going to hire folks to provide security, okay, uh, they should do that and they should be able to protect themselves and, but they shouldn't start crossing lines. It shouldn't so be you, if you, you, as a pre, as president Hoffling, hopefully you would have, uh, you would be okay with the idea per, conceivably of having your attorney general, uh, investigate cases where large city police forces were perhaps engaged in criminal activity and are abuse of power. Oh, absolutely. If that if that case can be made, uh, you know, as long as that case can be made, because you know we see a lot of accusations go around that aren't necessarily, you know, well grounded either. What What are the five agencies or programs? I'm only going to ask you for five. Your top five, the ones <laughs> on your hit list, that you would move to eliminate first uh, in your administration. I, I love to answer that, and I'll do it in a second, but i got to tell you that we're kind of moving through this in a way that isn't really the way I prioritize things. If folks will look at my 10 keys to saving the American Republic, and we have, I'm pointing out we haven't gotten to abortion and marriage yet. I'm going to, I'm going to get to those. Okay. Uh, as far as, yeah, what I, I guess what I, the reason I said that, Bill, is uh, the things I'm going to talk about now which we're talking about first, I place down uh, on the priority list. Uh, so I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. We'll save the best to last, you see. Okay, then we'll do it that way. We'll use the Socratic method this time. But uh, I'm kind of a don't bury the lead kind of guy, truthfully. But um, our federal government has grown far out of control. It's grown far outside of its constitutionally uh, enumerated powers. Uh, there's a long list. Uh, I have a simple test. Actually, I have a more rigorous test. It's eight points that every proposed law, every public policy, uh, I would be subjecting to in the White House. Uh, but I have a more simple three-step test, which is a little easier to explain. I would look at every law, uh, every public policy, and the first question would be, is it moral? As, right? de as determined by God's law? As determined by the revealed will of God and, and our, our, you know, knowledge of simple right and wrong, okay? Uh, the second question would be, is it constitutional? Uh, if it's not moral, throw it out. If it's not moral and it's not constitutional, forget it. Uh, the last one being, is it necessary? If it's moral and constitutional, it doesn't mean it's necessary. But if it is, then you go ahead and you implement that in the most efficient, uh, non-invasive way that you possibly can. Now, having said that, <laughs> it sounds simple. But if you put that simple test up against most of what the federal government is doing now, it doesn't hold up. Uh, uh, look, four years ago, <clears throat> the CBO, the Congressional Budget, Budget Office, told us that by 2025, our entire federal budget is going to be consumed on entitlement programs and interest on the debt. So the New Deal bill is about ready to come due, about the year that when I was slated to begin collecting Social Security. Um, 
And you know, when, once we reach that point, uh, we're defunct. We're already bankrupt. We're already at the stage of bankruptcy, but we will be absolutely insolvent but, uh, before we get to that point. So how do you fix that? People say, how do you fix the debt problem? How do you fix spending? It's simple. You get back within the bounds of the enumerated powers of the Constitution of the United States. Uh, the New Deal programs, these entitlements, don't stand up to that scrutiny. Just go read what Madison and the other founders said about uh, limited government. I, uh, yeah, I think we, we, we generally we all agree that that our entire economy is based on smoke and mirrors. It's a house of card built house of cards built on smoke and mirrors i want to go back and 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 and, and rescue you a bit if, if that doesn't sound inappropriate by sure. saying that we i'm an abolitionist like yourself and i think we agree that compared to every other problem america faces the judgment of god is number amen one. amen no, I, people ask me all the time, what's our most, you know, what's our worst national security threat? I say, that's easy. Uh, continuing to offend Almighty God. That's our biggest national security threat. Amen. We're on the so, same page. So. Yeah. So, you know, back to your question. I don't want to leave your question hanging. You know, I want to get rid of the IRS. Uh, I've been advocating that for decades. I want to get rid of the Fed, put monetary policy back in the hands of our representatives where it belongs. Uh, I want to get rid of the Education Department. I want to get rid of the EPA. I want to get rid of this alphabet list of agencies which are blocking our use of our lands in the West, in the woods, and out on uh, the range. Um, yeah, it's just an endless list. If, if you listed them all out and put them on a web page, you would be scrolling for hours. These things just need to go. Uh, that's the only way. Look, when you go read the Constitution, I urge people all the time, read the preamble because it's not a preamble. It doesn't call itself a preamble. It's actually the statement of purpose of the Constitu Constitution of the United States. And the crowning purpose of our Constitution is to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. That's what our Constitution is for. Uh, we got to start thinking about our kids and our grandkids. we got to stop running up debts that this generation cannot repay. That is robbing our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids of their God-given, unalienable right to government by consent. They did not consent to this debt. Uh, so, you know, that's what we got to do. Cut government back to size, to size, put the judges back within their appropriate authority, rein in the judges. That's a big part of what I work towards every day is fighting this judicial supremacist lie that basically is a coup d'etat uh, against our form of government. Uh, you know, all of my opponents are in this election are judicial supremacists to a man and woman. They're all judicial supremacists. Uh, we can't save the country until we learn uh, to tell these judges to go to Hades. So you, you, you believe that judges cannot and do not make law? They do not make law. You know, Article 1 of the Constitution does not give them that authority. Uh, they do not have the veto power. The only power they have is to adjudicate cases that come before them, and those cases only according 
to the laws of nature and nature's God according to the Constitution and according to all constitutional laws. That's it. They do not have force. They do not have will. Uh, they can't do anything that our representatives and that we the people do not allow them to do. They don't have the ability. Now, you've described yourself to me as a unionist, but perhaps you would want to uh, take a stab at describing your position on the Ninth and Tenth Amendment and states' uh, right to uh, interpose our, what our friend Matt Trujillo refers to as the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, meaning that it is the state's, not only their right, but their obligation to defy federal law that they consider yeah. to be unconstitutional or immoral. Yeah, we're supposed to have a system with intricate checks and balances that's been uh, greatly harmed in the last hundred years. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I know Matt and his work, and I appreciate him and admire him and the work that he's doing. I, I, I try to frame it in the terms of checks and balances, okay? We need to restore checks and balances in our system. Uh, and this all comes down to the oath of office. Uh, when officers of government take that oath, as Article 6 requires them to do, they're swearing to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, uh, not to obey out-of-control judges, not to uh, just do what anybody tells them to do. They're supposed to support and defend the Constitution. This runs uh, across uh, every level of government, every branch of government. They're all supposed to be checking one another. Uh, as far as the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, the Ninth Amendment, to put it in the vernacular, just basically says, just because a right is not enumerated in this Constitution, that doesn't mean the people don't retain it. That's what the Ninth Amendment says. That was included at Mad Madison's insistence. Uh, he and others did not want a Bill of Rights. They said the preamble is a Bill of Rights. The whole Constitution is a Bill of Rights. They didn't want one because they said, Bills of rights are sought from sovereign kings, and the people in this country are the sovereign. We don't need a Bill of Rights. Uh, but kind of the Anti-Federalists and others kind of won that political war over that, and uh, Madison gave in not, you know, during the first Congress, or the, the time of the first, when the Congress uh, was first constituted under our Constitution. And he said, fine, I'll help you pass it, but we have to include the Ninth Amendment. Just so it's clear that just because a right is not enumerated, that doesn't mean that people don't keep it. I'll, I'll use a couple. You know, there are lots of enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights and in our Constitution, but a couple that are enumerated that we know are God-given unalienable rights. One would be parental rights. It's not enumerated. Another would be our right of free political association. That's our right, but it's not enumerated. So that's what the Ninth Amendment is all about. Uh, the Tenth Amendment talks about legitimate power, and it basically says, uh, you know, uh, here's the powers for the federal government, the power of the states, and the rest of them are reserved to the people. Um, so some people point uh, to the Tenth Amendment, for example, on abortion. I think that's totally wrong. Tenth Amendment has nothing to do with it uh, because the states don't have a right to allow murder within their jurisdictions, either on a natural uh, law, moral basis, or in terms of our Constitution, which explicitly requires the states 
to protect innocent human life and to do so equally for every person. Um, what are your, this is a two-part question, sort of following up on that. Uh, what are your general views on executive orders and um, how could a president, what are the actions that you believe that a president could and should take <clears throat> to reverse Roe v. Wade and Oberfeld? Well, executive orders are absolutely necessary because all they really are is the chief executive giving orders to those who are under his authority. That's all executives are. It's him issuing uh, his instructions to the people who work for him in the executive branch. That's what they are. So they're required. Uh, as far as Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, folks would say, we got to overturn Roe. No, 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 no. We don't have to overturn Roe. We don't have to repeal Roe. You can only repeal laws. And Roe and Oberfell are not laws. They're court opinions. Touche. Uh, <laughs> as we said earlier, courts don't make laws. They issue opinions. Uh, do you know, Bill, that in the early part of the Republic, they didn't even save court opinions. They weren't even government documents. Private printers kind of gathered them up and sometimes printed them and sometimes didn't. Uh, it wasn't until much later that they began to collect them. And, and as the power of the court, unfortunately, grew and grew and grew. And Thomas Jefferson warned us about this in great detail, by the way. Uh, Lincoln warned about it in his first inaugural. Those who uh, basically wanted to set up a, an oligarchy uh, where the judges rule over us, which is what we've come to. Um, so, look, all, again, all the way back to Aquinas, all the way back to Cicero, any law that violates the laws of nature, nature's God, is null and void. Hamilton said anything, any law that violates uh, our Constitution is null and void. So that means treat it as, as if it does not exist. So you, you know, so a president could, in your mind, uh, could just simply announce to all the governors of the of the various states that they were free to disregard those two court opinions, and that oh, more than that, your Justice Department <laughs> would have no intention of ever prosecuting any state that would uh, re denounce them or ignore them. No, I, I go much further than that, Bill, actually. Uh, the governor's job is to provide equal protection for innocent human life, so they have an obligation to do it. I wouldn't suggest that they wouldn't be prosecuted. I would issue orders to the governors to do it, to shut down the abortion clinics. I've been saying this for five years, and the only one uh, that's been saying anything like this, if, if folks will go to ProLifeProfiles.com, uh, it's a website of American Right to Life. Uh, they have a tier system uh, for not just candidates, but other public figures. I'm the only tier one uh, personhood pro-life candidate. And if you read, you click on my name there towards the top left. Uh, I spelled this out five years ago. I, I made it very clear. Uh, the first day after I take the oath of office, as Article 6 requires, I'll sit down in the Oval Office, and the first thing that I will do will be to write a presidential finding to the effect uh, that the child in utero is a person. This is a self-evident natural fact. And I would uh, say, you know, this is the position, this is the policy of the, of the government of the United States, as long as I'm the president. 
The next thing I would do is I would ask for the resignation of everyone in the executive branch who doesn't understand the self-evident natural fact. Uh, the next thing would be to begin issuing orders to the governors to shut down the abortion clinics, to order the pharmacies, the Walmarts, everybody to clear their shelves of the abortifacient chemical weapons of mass destruction that are there. Playing devil's advocate for just a brief minute, and this is not a role I, I like to do, but would do you believe that such an order would be lawful? Yes, I do. Uh, I mean, what is the president's job? He's the commander-in-chief. His job, before anything else, is, is to protect the lives of the people in this country. All of them. That's his job. What, what if there were terrorists killing three or 4,000 six-year-olds tomorrow in this country in our schools? Walking in. Three or 4,000. Do you think it would be lawful for the president of the United States to do something about that? To stop the people who are committing this mass murder? Would it be lawful? Well, I know that there are sanctuary cities and, 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 and mayors uh, ignore federal law with impunity and governors of certain certain states would likely disregard such an, a directive, don't you suppose? Uh, they certainly would, and that would lead to further complications. But in the first place, the governors have the primary responsibility under the 14th Amendment to provide equal protection for every person. So the first responsibility needs to be put on their shoulders. The ones that would do it, they should be champions. They should be heroes. The ones who won't do it, then you have to take further steps to protect the people of this country. I know that many of your associates, many of the people that appear on the list of the 100 most influential individuals in terms of the uh, champion, the rights of the unborn, uh, would go, would, would stop at uh, referring to uh, stop at criminalizing abortion. Now, obviously, if you close down all the state-sanctioned or licensed abortion clinics, then the only abortions, the only child murder that would be left would obviously be illegal abortions. Do you, uh, how, how do you feel about calling abortion murder and the people who are complicit, the mothers, the uh, abortionists, uh, guilty of murder well things are what things are bill uh it's murder whether i call it murder or not it just simply is if you understand the simple self-evident truth that we're dealing with little persons here little human beings okay it is murder by by definition so about three or four years ago four years ago now um we managed to elect one of our people here in my state house district uh, a good friend of mine by the name of Tom Shaw, and we sent him down into that line or that snake pit down there in Des Moines. And one of the things he did, among a whole bunch of good things, he tried to do anyway, was he. I helped him write a bill that went straight to the murder code and appropriately identified the child in the womb as a human being, as a person. Okay, so in other words, put them on exactly the same footing as any other person. And if you murder them, you're, you're guilty of murder. Uh, people don't realize this is what led to Roe in the first place, was bad legislating in Texas. Uh, when that case went its way to the Supreme Court, the, the judges looked at the Texas Code, and they did not treat unborn babies the same as other persons. So they, they had an excuse to depersonify, to dehumanize that child. 
So we 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 uh, we offered that bill. We went had to also go through the Iowa Code and scrub out all of the pro-life legislation that's been put there for the last 40 years, because it virtually all ends with "and then you can kill the baby." It it grants governmental license to kill babies, all of them, as long as certain you know time and other. Uh, arbitrary requirements are met. So we had to get those out of there to make the murder code coherent. Now, the Republicans, of course, buried it in subcommittee and went right back to their next useless uh, regulatory and then you can kill the baby bill. Immoral, unconstitutional bills. Right. So you're for eradication and not regulation. Uh, you don't regulate mass murder. You end it. I think we would agree with that, but and, and and the thing is, if you have the governmental power to regulate abortion, you have the governmental power to end it. That's what people don't understand. Good point. Uh, one of the things that I uh, and the reason this has come up is because uh, many try to use the term pro-life and abolition sort of synonymously, and in the recent days there has been more of a distinction being made because some of the proposed legislation that has tried to get tra- gain traction in various different states through some grassroots movements has been uh, severely uh, opposed by professional pro-lifers people who basically you know I, I maybe think people think I'm being a little bit harsh when I say that for some professional pro-lifers they seem to treat abortion the way the medical establishment treats cancer. It's not really a disease to be cured. It's an industry to be milked. And, and, and that, that might sound overly harsh, but we've got 44 years of pro-life activity, and we've got 60-plus yeah. million dead babies. That's and look, I'll tell you a couple of things. Those folks don't like me very much, Bill. I'll just tell you straight out, okay? And another thing is they won't debate me. They won't debate me. I've offered, I don't know how many of them, uh, the chance to debate me on these questions, and they, they simply won't do it. They don't have a leg to stand on. Uh, if, if our people will simply quit arguing about whether babies are persons, we all know they're persons, okay? It's self-evident. We all know it. Little kids know it, okay? This is just something that everybody knows. They're, 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 they're people. And uh, if we quit arguing about that, if we quit... Uh, getting off on rabbit trails, and if we just simply focus on two things. There's only two arguments against abortion. One is the God-given, unalienable nature of that child's right to live. Okay, And the other is the requirement by God and by our Constitution for equal protection under the law. So if you look at any piece of legislation or public policy, if it doesn't meet the equal protection test, it's bad. Well, I think... Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to move you into the final segment here and give you a chance to explain something that I read, and I think it's important, and I think you need to express it to your would-be voters. Before I do that, I want to, I want to, I want to underscore what I think was the takeaway of this entire uh, interview with you is that, in a, not again to sort of rephrase it, uh, what you said that you believed as as a chief executive, I think we're heartened to think of a man who believes that America's number one uh, security problem or, or, or national pending national disaster is the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And so that as a, as a leader, you would move 
as quickly as possible to remove the blood guilt from an entire nation of people who've done nothing uh, while his image has been snuffed out for 44 years. Um, that's, that's important. I think that's probably, the, the, probably one of the most heartening things any candidate for any office could say, that he fears God. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to let you explain to our listeners why you're not just a token candidate, why you are a serious candidate, and looking at the, at the Electoral College and the states and how you can be written in, you, you, you sort of lay out there on your website sort of a strategy of how you could actually win this thing. Now, I know that people think that that's impossible, improbable on a universal scale, and therefore they don't want to, quote, unquote, waste their vote. I would like you to explain to our listeners why a vote for you is not wasted okay. and how you could win it. Okay. Let me say, first of all, if people go to TomHolfling.com, my main website, uh, there, my platform is there. It's just 10 keys to saving the American Republic. And I believe all of those things are absolutely essential to have any chance to save the country before it's destroyed. Um, for me to win this election bill, what it requires, and to earthly eyes, it does look impossible. Okay, but it and but the only way it's impossible is if the church in this country continues to compromise with evil. Okay. As long as the church in this country continues to uh, compromise with evil, uh, it's impossible for me to be elected and it's impossible to save the country. Let me say that first. Um, uh, according to Gallup, they, you know, they do these surveys. I'm not big on polls. They're mainly used to manipulate people. But, you know, good surveys can be useful in learning things. Uh, over the decades, one of the polls of the surveys they've done is uh, seeing how many people still confess Christianity. And it's still at like 75% of the American people still claim to be Christians. Now, you and I both know, Bill, that a lot of that is cultural or whatever. But if even one-third of that 75% would quit compromising with the Republicans on, on abortion, on marriage, on judges, on all these important things, starting with the moral basis. If they would quit compromising and support me, I would win. It is a mathematical certainty. I would win the election. Uh, you know, we're running primarily a writing campaign because we've been doing a slow build for eight years, building a foundation of good, sincere, truly principled leadership throughout the country. It takes time, and, and folks haven't come in fast enough many times. Uh, but we've continued to build. We'll be on a handful of state ballots. Primarily, we'll be running a writing campaign in most states. Frankly, this year, people don't seem to care. They're ready to write in. They don't care. As long as they can vote for me, they're happy. Uh, the way it appears, as long as we finish all our work in the next two weeks, uh, somewhere in the 82%, 85% of the the voters representing 82, 85% of the electoral vote will be able to vote for our ticket. Okay. I often remind people Lincoln, Lincoln, uh, in 1860 only had 75% of the electoral vote available to him. Uh, he wasn't on the ballot in the Southern States at all. And he, even though he only got like 39% of the popular vote, he won the Electoral College with 58% of the electoral votes. 
Uh, when you have a fractured electorate and you have multiple candidates uh, in our electoral system, funny things can happen. And I have never, you know, I've been doing politics at all levels for 25 years. I've never seen the electorate like it is right now. It's extremely fractured, uh, like, like probably nothing we've seen since 1860. So it's not impossible. If the church would turn around, it'd be easy. We could save this country practically overnight if the church would just get back to God, get back to the scripture, get back to the original principles of our country and quit compromising them for politicians and political parties. You know, one of, one of the best, one of the, uh, best uh, political uh, cartoons I think I, I've ever seen, I don't even remember when or how long ago it was. it was. When I was young, I think it really stuck with me. It had a picture of a guy, and he's just got his hands up, and he says, but what can one man do? And then in the next scene, it shows a crowd of millions of individuals each saying, but what can one man do? Exactly. And, and uh, so I think there, that's when your when your I think that's when your candidacy became somewhat compelling for me individually, is when I saw that you really do uh, have. I mean, there is a way it can happen. It's like, you know, it might be a long shot, but uh, with God, all things are possible. Well, and, and the other part of it, Bill, is this: again, I am the only abolitionist candidate. Uh, the other candidates are giving us. Uh, the assurance that they will continue abortion on demand. I mean, Donald Trump, I watch it. I have the video. He's on national television telling us that he will do nothing to stop abortion. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the only abolitionist candidate. I'm the only candidate defending the civil institution of marriage. It was just a couple short years ago that the Republican Party was riding on the back in the elections on our efforts to protect marriage in the states. We won 32 straight times in 32 straight states, okay? The Republicans had a bonanza from that. And then what happened in 2012 is the Romney Republicans totally stood down. At the same moment that the left was mounting their biggest efforts to push gay marriage through uh, with in four states. Uh, at that point, they just, well, we'll just use our judicial card and we'll just, you know, force this thing home. Uh, I'm the only one fighting that. I'm the only one doing it. And I'm the only one that's not a judicial supremacist who hasn't surrendered to this coup d'etat against Republican constitutional self-government. I'm the only one. Well, I think uh, one, of our, one of our favorite um, resident theologians and scholars has described you as the imperfect good. Compared, yeah. to, compared oh. to compared to the two evils, and and at the very least, I would say that you are the only candidate that could probably elucidate even what it means to fear God, and and and. Uh, well, my my campaign is quite unique. I mean, there's certainly no other presidential candidates like me running around. I mean, I made it, uh, you know, very clear from the beginning. A, our campaign was going to be real. Okay. It's not going to. It's not going to be slick. We're going. This is going to be real. It's going to be a real grassroots campaign, a front porch campaign, the way they used to run campaigns in this country. Uh, but you know, uh, also my campaign is aimed at the church. I'm not. I'm not taking anything off the ball. Okay. I, I'm not even choking up on the bat. I mean, I'm aiming right between the eyes of the church. At the very moment when we're watching so many in the church 
just lose their minds with Donald Trump. I've never seen anything like it, Bill. Uh, the twisting of scripture, the, the uh, condemning of people who are simply trying to do the right thing, the justifications, the covering for wickedness, pure wickedness that's going on in our country right now. At the same moment, I'm looking the church in the eye and saying, forget the heathens. Uh, whether or not this country survives is up to you and what you do. Amen. I agree with that 100%. Uh, Tom, tell uh, tell our listeners in the few mi- minutes we have remaining what you need, obviously prayer, and yeah. uh, how they can support you financially and uh, well, what you need on the ground as far as uh, uh, boots on the ground. Uh, where are the states you need to find supporters that were, there's something that can still be done in a in terms of yeah. the game. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, first of all, I, I worry, we don't want your money. We want you, and we mean that. America's Party takes no donations. My presidential campaign takes no donations. If you want to spend money, go buy materials. Go get some graphics off our website. There's a whole page full of them. Go print your own signs. Print your own bumper stickers. Go on the social networks. Go on your email. Get on the phone. Call everybody in your address book. Uh, If the founders of this country could win our independence from Great Britain using handwritten letters delivered by men on horseback, we can do it with our smartphones and our Internet and our free conferencing ability and our free uh, everything that we have. We have instant communications. Uh, So we don't want your money. We want you. We want you to do your citizen duty. We have constructed our campaign in such a way that if you don't do it, it ain't going to get done. It ain't going to happen without you. It's totally up to you. It's on your shoulders. This is your election. You're the campaign manager. But where, what states do you need uh, things to happen in? Uh, we've got to, just in the next week or so, and actually in the next few days, we want to really get way towards finishing up. Uh, I think we finished up Nebraska today. We still need a handful of electors in uh, Virginia and Wisconsin and Missouri. So if, if folks are in those states, uh, I'm going to ask them to email me. I'll give that address in just a second. We still need a fairly large block of electors in California to run a writing campaign. And so this weekend, I'm going to be devoting to scaring up. We've probably got about half of them, but we got to hurry up and get the rest of those so we're qualified in California to receive writing votes. So if you're in California, particularly. Also, New York, uh, they could use a few more electors. They've already filed, but they could add some to their list, and we could use a few more. So New York, Wisconsin, Virginia, uh, Missouri, uh, and California. Uh, Send an email to tomhofling2016 at gmail.com. T-O-M-H-O-E-F-L-I-N-G 2016 at gmail.com. That's the email just for our ballot access stuff. As far as uh, helping on the campaign, go to my website, look under the more drop down there on the right, and look for 5 by 5 There's our simple communications and organization plan. But it really boils down to go get five more people. Uh, if you need them convinced, I'll take the time to talk to them. I'm not dealing with the media. I'm not raising money. I'm talking to real people. Uh, twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday night for more than nine years, we have national town hall meetings on the conference line. Uh, those uh, numbers and times are on my website and on the selfgovernment.us America's Party site. 
so you can figure out how to dial in. If you still have questions, if you have people who have questions for me, get them on the telephone. We spend hours on there answering every question of everybody who shows up. I just, uh, one of our questions came across is, are there any states where writing you in invalidates the ballot? I think they were asking about Oklahoma. Do you know anything about that? That's the only state I've heard that that might be possible. I, I would urge people to really check with their uh, their election officials at the state and local level about that. Because I don't know of any other state where writing my name in would invalidate, invalidate the ballot. Uh, Oklahoma doesn't allow writing, so I don't know how they could write it in anyway. Okay. Uh, uh, there, are, there are a handful of states that don't allow writing. Uh, I, I do want to take the opportunity to tell people, if you're in one of those states, you need to be ripping on your state reps and state senators and tell them, you restore the people's ability to have the final say in our elections. These are our elections, not your elections. Knock it off. Put that back. And, and drop these requirements for grassroots people to get on the ballot. Drop it down to reasonable levels uh, that aren't simply a blockade against the people rising up and reclaiming their government. Well, folks, if you... Uh if you want a shot at um, removing the blood guilt on this nation that comes from state-sanctioned wholesale child sacrifice and sodomite marriage, Tom Hofling is your man. And I think he's the only one. So, Tom, we really appreciate you taking this time with us. It's been That's a great. real delight to get to know you. Oh, likewise, Bill. And... Uh, you know, no matter how the election comes out, we're going to continue to be working on, on on November 9th. And I won't be satisfied until, you know, I've gone to be with the Lord or until those uh, abortion facilities are nothing but a vacant lot with maybe one white cross in the middle to commemorate all of these tens of millions of innocents that have died. Well, here on Reconstructionist Radio, we believe that the future is as bright as the promises of God. Amen. So, Tom, thank you for joining us here on The War Room. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by My Soul Among Lions. 